Good morning. My name is Conrad, and I serve as one of the elders here at FBC. Today we'll be reading from the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. My name is Greg, if you and I haven't met. A couple of things I wanted to touch on this morning. After church today, we have a mission Sunday lunch. We have these lunches occasionally after church. Anyone's welcome to attend. It's in the fireside room. Today, the highlight is Salvation Army. They will be in there talking about uh, their ministry here in the uh, Rogue Valley, as well as an opportunity to volunteer as one of the... Um, Bell ringers. I don't know why that escaped me. Bell ringers. Yeah, every time you ring a bell, Angel gets his wings. Um, so if you want to uh, be a part of that, we'd look forward to meeting you in the fireside direct room directly after the service. Speaking of mission, we have coming up an opportunity for us to serve our community at our FBC Family Fun Night, October 31st. And your mission now, if you choose to accept it, is to supply candy. Uh, I was discussing with a young person the correct vessel to collect candy in at the fa uh, FBC Family Fun Night. Popular choice is the pumpkin or some other container. And of course, the right choice is a uh, pillowcase. <laughs> Somebody did, a, did the math on that. I think Jesse, did you do the math on that? I don't know where Jesse went. Um, I think, he, I think we, he came up with it. You can get 1,600 pieces of candy in a standard pillowcase. So uh, kids are coming, and they want 1,600 pieces of candy. So get her done and bring candy. Well, that's not good for kids. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Um, also, uh, mention the affirmation. Somebody asked, so I don't know. I'm going to put them on the spot. Matt, are you here? Matt Schmidt, is he here? He might not be here. You've got little kids. Okay, if he's here, somebody's going, well, I want to know who Matt Schmidt is. Um, and so if you meet Matt Schmidt, point him out to other people. Uh, he's one of our deacons looking forward to joining us uh, once he's affirmed. Finally, uh, on uh, Saturday news, our good friend George Thomas went home to be with the Lord uh, this week. And so please be in prayer for Hazel and Nancy and Joni and their whole family. And uh, we're grateful to know that George is now healthy and whole uh, with his Savior, but we will miss him 
uh, greatly. Uh, so we appreciate your prayers there. All right, we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's pray, and then uh, let's get after it. God, we thank you for your word this morning. Our prayer is that you would give us a willingness by your spirit to submit to the truth of your word. We pray you would help our minds understand what it means and how you would call us to repentance and call us to faith and obedience. And Lord, we pray this morning you would make us more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians, we sort of subtitled our study in 1 Corinthians. You can see it on the screen there. Real people, real stuff, really good news. And you can substitute quite a bit of things in there for the word stuff. Some of them are appropriate, some of them not. And I'm not even kidding. Have you heard about this church in Corinth? And so as we have looked at 1 Corinthians over the last couple of weeks, I might say it this way. We've sort of got the pleasantries out of the way. Now it's time to get to the real stuff. This morning we get into the meat and potatoes of what Paul wants to address with the church in Corinth. And there's a lot going on that needs to be addressed and have the gospel applied to it. And the message to the church in Corinth is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago uh, when he wrote it. Because the issues that that church faced are the same issues that every church and every believer faces in every age because people still fundamentally are lost without the good news of the gospel. And so we'll, the question I want you to ask yourself as we jump into 1 Corinthians beginning in verse 10 this morning is this. Why are you part of a church. Why are you part of a church? Now you could, oh, my mom took me and my dad took me and I feel like you'll go and if I stay home I feel guilty. There's lots of reasons why you might say you showed up at a church service. But when it comes down to it, in, when you think about it in your own heart and mind, why is it that you would be a part of a church? What is it, maybe you could put it this way, you might not say this because it seems rude, but you know, what are you getting out of it? I mean, you know, because we're motivated by lots of things. When I get, go to In-N-Out Burger, what do I get out of it? A double-double. It's not complicated. I give money, they give me happiness. It's not, it's a trade-off. So the question is, when you go to church, what are you getting out of it? What do you get, what, and you say, well, I don't approach it that way. Well, then you're better than most. And what the Apostle Paul is going to do is challenge some of the ways we approach that question what are we getting out of church? Why are we part of a church? And here's uh, the, the title of the message today. It's the main point that we want to drive home from the text this morning. Is we are held together by the cross. Held together by the cross. And, and what that means is the reason we participate in a community of believers is the cross to the exclusion of other things. And it's because of the cross that encourages us to have a relationship with one another that glorifies our Savior. Verses 10, 11, and 12. Let's look at it. Held together by the cross, not insignificant commonalities. Held together by the cross, not other things. Insignificant commonalities. Many years ago, I had the opportunity to be a camp counselor up at uh, Camp Tadmore, camp uh, near Sweet Home, uh, Oregon, Lebanon, Oregon. And uh, every year at this camp, uh, what they would do, uh, I think it was usually on Wednesdays, it was uh, the games that they were, were slip and slide. 
And you, and you say, well, no, slip and slide. I got that in my front yard. No, this is a slip and slide on a scale you haven't seen before. Uh, there's an activity field, and this piece of visqueen, this plastic, is 100, 150 feet square. I mean, this is a massive piece of plastic, which they hose down with a fire hose. That's how they keep the thing wet. And then they cover it with dish soap. So this is a massive piece of plastic that is sudsing with water and dish soap. And you play lots of games, most of which end up in an ambulance. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. It's a lot of fun. <clears throat> so the final event of the slip and slide dealio thing is they get all the male counselors and you go out into the middle of this giant piece of slippery plastic and it, it's called a counselor pull-apart. Have you ever heard of this game? So what it is is you all grapple and hold on to one another and the various teams get a point. For each counselor, they're able to drag across their side of the slip and slide. So your goal as a counselor is to hold on to the to the other guys with you. That's the goal. How are we going to stay connected? So as you're gathering in the middle and you're about to have 400 kids converge on you to tear you apart, it, not concerned about your personal well-being, I should say. <laughs> what is your strategy? You want to have the strongest connection you can possibly have because everything is going to be trying to pull you apart. The only way to have connection is to have the strongest possible connection. So if one of the counselors was handing out facial tissue and holding out, now what we're going to do is each hold on to the tissues and then hold on to that tissue really tight and the kids will never break the bonds of these tissues. What's going to happen? You're going to, you're going to lose. Those, they will never withstand the outside forces. So I walked out to the middle of this giant piece of visqueen and I stood next to Moose. That was his camp name. And it was appropriate. Moose was massive. Moose had just graduated from Oregon State University, where for four years he had played linebacker for the Oregon State University football team. I said, Moose, I will never let go of you if you will never let go of me. <laughs> and uh, Moose agreed. We had an accord. And we did never let go of each other. They just dragged us both across together. <laughs> I've always felt a pretty good connection with Moose. I haven't seen him since, but we had something special that day. So the question is, as we come together, as a body of believers, we, are to be held, we have to be held together by the strongest possible thing. And it's the cross, according to the Apostle Paul, not insignificant commonalities we like to help be held together by. Petty allegiances, common interests, these kinds of things, hobbies, political kinds of things, these things appeal to our sense of place in the world. These things appeal to our sense of purpose in the world, but they have no place and will serve no purpose in holding the body of believers together. Common interests, common values, common views on how the world ought to operate, all of these things give us a sense of where do we fit in the world but how does the church hold together? The Apostle Paul says it is the cross. That is the, the one thing that will hold the body of believers together when all of the outside forces are trying to pull it apart. Look at verse, one, verse 10. He gives us the command. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united, united in the same mind and the same judgment. He makes his point right away, and if we would get it, this sermon would be short, as we'd be done. He says, have agreement. Have agreement. 
Have, have no divisions among you and be united with a, the same mind. And notice he makes the command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, according to the king of the universe and the head of the body of believers, the church, according to his authority and according to his opinion, I call you to have agreement and unity with no disunity. He's saying, I appeal to Christ. That if he was among you, that's what he's saying. If Christ is among you, I appeal to him as to whether or not you are having unity or disunity. Whether or not you're having agreement or disagreement. I appeal to Christ. And he wants us to specifically consider in our own hearts, what is the rallying cry we have of coming together as a body of believers? Is our rallying cry Christ crucified or is it? other things. What we're going to see here in a minute, but what the Corinthian believers were doing is they were rallying together behind certain teachers they found compelling. Certain kinds of people they found interesting or entertaining or compelling. And so their rallying cry was something other than Christ crucified. But, but uh, Paul is telling the Corinthian believers, your rallying cry together, the thing that brings you together must be one thing and one thing only because it's the only thing that can withstand the forces trying to divide you and it is Christ crucified. Look with me at John chapter 17 verse 21. John 17 21. Jesus says to his disciples as he's praying, and you know people who do this, they're praying but they're really trying to make a point to you. You don't get to do it unless you're Jesus. If you're Jesus, you can do it. Here, Jesus is praying. He says this. He prays that God, that his disciples may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that his disciples would have unity that can only be described as oneness and that that oneness would be the same as the oneness that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus prays for his church. What do we call that? We call that impossible. He has asked us, number one, just to be one. Okay, on the, we could say, well, maybe we could do that. Maybe we could have unity. We could figure that out. We haven't, but let's pretend like maybe we could. Maybe we can figure that out. And then Jesus takes it next level in his prayer request. What's he say? I, I want you to have unity and oneness, but not just any kind of oneness. I want to you to have the kind of oneness that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What kind of oneness exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Complete and total unity within the, the relational head of the, of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which has always existed for all of a time with, with complete unity. That's what he prays for us. So Jesus prays for us something that is completely and utterly impossible for us to accomplish. And now why would Jesus do that? So that we would abandon petty common interests. Because having shared hobbies will not give you eternal union, will it? The, the, the kinds of union we want are completely possible. We want unity about all kinds of things we rally around uh, together. And we'll see that in a minute what the Corinthians are rallying around. Jesus specifically says, I want you to have unity that is such 
kind of unity, it is completely impossible for you to achieve so that you'll recognize how important it is your rallying point be the cross. So that you'll abandon other purposes for being together to pursue only the unity that will be, that will be possible through making cross the cross the central uh, purpose. Look at what he says at the end of verse uh, 21 of John 17. He says, may they be in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. A fundamental element of the testimony of the risen Christ is a body of believers with such unity that the only explanation is the miraculous work of the cross. And any other kind of unity is not a good testimony for the cross. Okay, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Let's look at verse 11. Paul says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people, Team Chloe. I don't know what that's about, but Chloe had some people, probably employees, where our guess is that Chloe was a businesswoman in the city of Corinth, and she had sent some people on a business trip with her business, and they encountered Paul. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. I'm going to show you a map. If we can put the map up there. This is a, a map of the Aegean Sea. Uh, you can see, I don't know if you are good at the geographies. Um, there's the Aegean Sea there in the middle. The, you, do you see the red line uh, similar to what you would see in a Raiders of the Ark, Lost Ark movie where the plane flies somewhere? <laughs> On the left side of that line, there's a little star, and that's the city of Corinth, ancient Corinth. They're on a little isthmus just to the left of Athens, right? And then if you go due east following that little red line, you land in modern-day Turkey just north, just north and slightly to the east of uh, the modern-day city of Kushidashi. You have the ancient city of Ephesus. That's where Paul was writing from. He was writing to the people in Corinth all the way on the other side of the Aegean Sea from the city of Ephesus. Chloe's people, look, look where, what Chloe's people have done. Now you're thinking, well, they just hopped on a plane. No, no, no. First of all, they've got to walk. They probably, they either took a ship out of, out of Corinth, got to make their way around the, 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 the you know, Greece there and kind of go through the islands, or they walked across the land and took a port on the east side of Greece. Either way, they've got to take a ship. They've got to walk a little ways. Ephesus, of course, has a great harbor in it at the time. There's no harbor there now. Had a great harbor. So they travel all the way across the Aegean Sea. Not an easy task. And they get to see the Apostle Paul. And what do they tell him? These people are not getting along. How bad was these disagreements in Corinth? It's traveling over land and sea. That when Chloe's people get to the Apostle Paul, they say, you may have seen a lot of things. You may have heard a lot of things about this church. But we're going to give you the real scoop. These people are not getting along. They are filled with disunity and they are rallying around all kinds of other teachers instead of rallying around Christ. This, the reputation of the church of Corinth is a church of unity around lesser things. And because everybody is rallying around their little person that they wanted to follow, it's creating disunity in the church. That's how bad this division was. It traveled over land and sea uh, to reach the Apostle Paul. Let's look at now at verse 12 to see exactly what's going on. Paul says this, what I mean is each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. 
So what it is, the people of the, the city of Corinth were each choosing sort of their favorite preacher or teacher or prophet. Some people said, we really love the Apostle Paul. He's the one who lead us, led us to Christ. And he doesn't pull any punches. And he's plain spoken and straightforward. Then you have other people who really liked Apollos, who was an intellectual, trained in the uh, North African city of Alexandria. And, and Apollos was a great speaker, trained in the uh, philosophy and rhetoric of, of ancient Greece. And he could have stood up. I've said this many times before. Apollos could stand up and read the phone book and people would get saved. That's how good this guy was. And when he spoke, people listened. Man, this guy is great. He makes that, he makes that Paul sound like an idiot. I like Apollos. Then other people really, they really rallied behind Cephas or Peter. Well, this guy was there from the beginning. He, he really saw it. Peter's a, a man of the people. He's cutting ears off and he's popping off and saying stuff when he doesn't know what to say. And he's, he's my kind of guy. And he was there from the beginning. He walked on water. Who else has walked on water besides Jesus? Peter. Peter's my guy. Apollos, he could barely swim. I don't know. So that's what they're all doing. And then you got these people. I follow Christ. These are the, Jesus is always the right answer in church people. These are people who just love the gospel. This is the super spiritual. You know who this person is. I noticed how nobody looked around. But this is the person who's always got a one-up the spiritual. Oh, you like Paul? Well, I like, I like Jesus. So this isn't the, the good kind of like in Jesus where they're committed to the gospel. This is the, I like Jesus because I want to be better than everybody else in church kind of I like Jesus. And so everybody's rallying around their person. Everybody is saying, I want to have commonality on who I like to hear preach or who I think presents the, God, the, the scripture in a way that is important. And what the Apostle Paul is wanting them to understand, commonality based on lesser things is not strong enough. It will not endure the forces that are trying to separate the body of Christ. The only commonality that will endure is the cross. Rallying around any other thing, including mere humans, is just a cause of division. Is there anything wrong with listening to Paul and respecting him? No. Is there anything wrong with hearing Apollo's teaching and being encouraged in your walk with Christ? Absolutely not. Is there anything wrong with hearing the testimony of Peter and having it challenge you to follow the gospel? Absolutely not. But what these people were doing is saying, I, what kind of Christian are you? Well, I like Peter. It's wearing a label of what kind of Christian you are. I'm this kind of Christian, and this kind of Christian, I am not your kind of Christian, so I'm going to create a division. And Paul is saying that unity will never last. The only union that lasts in the body of Christ is the union that comes with recognizing Christ is crucified for sinners. Look back at verse 10, just briefly. <clears throat> he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he is doing here is he's saying the, the Lord Jesus is in church. The Lord Jesus came to church today. He got here before we did. He comes with us as we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus looks at the point, the reasons for which we said, I want to be here and see these people. And he has an opinion. And he says, oh, you, you wanted to see these people because these are your kinds of Christians. Jesus has an opinion about what brings us together. And Jesus has an opinion about what divides us. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. The reason for your union 
is a matter that Jesus will consider. And he wants to know, are you coming together because of the cross or do you have other things you are interested in? Jesus saves us from our sin, so all the other connections we have with people will seem smaller, not more important, smaller. Held together by the cross, not insignificant commonalities. Question is, how do we go about doing that? How do we go about having the cross be the rallying cry of our body, of a body of believers? And the answer is to... Uh, not rob the gospel of its power. Let's look at verses 13 through 17. We're held together by the cross because the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. I don't know if you have internet in your home. I have internet in my house. Do most people nowadays? It seems like a lot of people do. Um, so you have an internet provider, okay? So the internet, you need an internet provider I don't know how to say it. So you just have to hate them, I think. Is that right? I mean, aren't they just the worst? Like you have to, you need internet because you need to be able to get email and use your phone and whatever and you got to watch Netflix. I mean, you would die. <laughs> but then don't we complain? So here's the thing. I mean, I won't say who, um, uh, who is my internet provider. I mean, there's only like two in town. So what you guess, got a 50% shot, right? Uh, but they don't have Hunter in my neighborhood. So I got the other. Um, <laughs> Um, so I get a, an email or text from this uh, company, uh, um, I don't know, a hundred times a day. Uh, you know, they sold me a service which I wanted to buy, but apparently it was terrible because they think I should have something else. <laughs> like, like when I was there buying it, why didn't you tell me something else? Because I bought the thing and now you're going to send me a hundred emails a day telling me why I need something else. Why didn't you give me that when I came in? Why do I need a hundred emails a day? And then what happens is then they actually do send me an email that I should read. You know, your service is out or there's a problem with your bill or something like this. Well, I don't see it because of the 2,000 emails that tells me I need to upgrade to faster interwebs. And so what happens is the, the important message that I needed to hear is robbed of its power because of all these other interests. And this is what's gonna, what happens in the body of believers. The message of the gospel get, gets robbed of its power when we have other things that are competing for our allegiance. We have other things that are important to us as to why we ought to come together. And what happens is it dilutes the message of the gospel in our midst. Because we, we inadvertently communicate the reason we have connection, the reason we have hope, the reason we have a bright future is because of these interests we hold together. We have a vacation we're looking forward to. We have an anticipation of a political thing going our way. We have certain hopes in terms of the values of our community. And so if we can hold these things together, everything's going to be okay. And so therefore, we've just communicated the gospel doesn't make everything okay enough because we need these other things to happen. And what Paul is going to tell us is the message of the gospel is so important. The message of the gospel is so powerful. It is so life-giving. It is so life-changing. It does not need your help. We do not need to save our world with the gospel and other stuff. The means of salvation is faith in Christ of the gospel alone. And when we put our hope in other things, it waters down our testimony of the hope of the gospel. In fact, it diminishes it. Look at verse 13. Rhetorical question. Is Christ divided? What's the appropriate answer? 
No, no, Christ is not divided. That's a ridiculous question. Was Paul crucified for you? No, good. You've read your Bible. You've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. At the end of that, uh, Jesus is crucified not even once. I've read him many, many times. Not even once did I read Paul was crucified. It's a ridiculous statement. No, of course Paul was not crucified. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No, that's ridiculous. And so what he's saying is, look, you're dividing over these things, over things that aren't divided. It's obvious. What is the most important thing in the body of believers? What's the most important thing? Jesus died on the cross. This is the most important thing. And when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ. We identify with him as our Savior who was crucified and raised from the dead. The reason believers come together is because we have identified through baptism with Jesus. We're on Team Jesus. So we want to hang out with people who are on Team Jesus. That's the whole point. And he's saying here is your other allegiances should seem small and petty when compared to the, the crucified Savior. Because these people were appealing. Why well, I love Apollos. Now, Apollos is a good teacher. Can Apollos save you from your sin? Well, no, absolutely not. Now, Paul is kind to his friends, both Apollos and Peter, and he only uses himself in the example of the rhetorical questions he's asking, but whatever your allegiance is, can that thing save you from your sin? Whatever commonality you might have with others, and Paul is saying, no, it can't save you from your sin, and to the degree that the world sees us as having a commonality other than the gospel, it harms the testimony of the, of the church. So if the world looks at a church and says those people come together because they have similar views of morality in the, in the community. Now, would you expect a church to have similar views of morality in the community? You might. You, you might expect that. But if that's our rallying cry, is we come together to tell the world how naughty they are. That's one element of the gospel. The other element is hope. So, in Christ. But what, the, what Paul is saying, the world should look at the, a group of believers and say, there's a group of people that come together because they believe Christ was crucified. That should be the rallying cry the world recognizes. And to the degree the world looks at a church and sees a different kind of rallying cry, its witness to the gospel is harmed. Let me read verses 14, 15, and 16. We're still in 1 Corinthians 1 if you're lost. I thank God that I baptized none of you. And I love this. I mean, you think the Apostle Paul, one, one scholar said the Apostle Paul might have been the smartest man who ever lived. Okay, this passage speaks against that a little bit. But let me tell you what his point he's making. I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus. That always makes me think of cereal. <laughs> Gaius. Verse 15 so that no one would say they were baptized in my name. And then he sort of is sitting there going, oh, wait a minute. I did baptize the house of Stephanus. He's going to be mentioned later on in the book of 1 Corinthians. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anybody. Now, why would he do this? This seems rude. So say he's visiting the city of Corinth and a little guy runs up to him and says, Paul, 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 you mean so much to me. You've challenged my spiritual life. I found Christ through the message of the gospel. And what I really cling to, Paul, is you baptized me. And what would Paul say? I have no memory of that. I, yeah, I'm sorry. Good on you, though, I guess. Was the water cold? Was it clean? 
Why would Paul be so disregarding of his baptism of this poor guy? What, isn't he going to ruin him? Shouldn't Paul be honored to be baptizing somebody? Why isn't he? Because Paul's not the point. He wants to shake this guy. What are you, why are you talking to me? You think it matters who baptized you? That, that, that the point we're coming together is not that you can go around and wear a t-shirt to say, I was baptized by the Apostle Paul. Paul's saying no one cares. No one cares. It matters. What matters is who you were baptized into. Who were you baptized into? If you were baptized into the king of the universe, the risen savior, what difference does it make who baptized you? None. And Paul's point is the fact that you're mentioning who baptized you makes me realize you've missed the point. Because the point is, are you identified with the risen Savior? And so what Paul is doing is he is expressing gratitude that he didn't spend a lot of time baptizing people. Because he didn't want this church to be focused on allegiance to him. He wanted this church to get their allegiance back on to the risen Savior. Paul is not trying to impress anyone. In fact, look at it. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 19. We're not going to get into... If we do get into 2 Corinthians, it'll be about 10 years from now. Here we go. Just in case you think he's trying to impress the Corinthian believers, he says, I'm sorry, have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? Oh, now it's awkward. That should be in there. Oh, you thought... You thought I was trying to impress you, is kind of what he's saying. Listen, it's in the sight of God we've been speaking in Christ and for the uplifting of the beloved. So these believers think, well, we're going to rally behind the Apostle Paul and he'll be so excited that we're rallying behind the Apostle Paul. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, you thought I cared. I want to point you to where? The cross. To the cross. That's Paul's whole job. And if you're rallying behind the Apostle Paul, if you're rallying behind Apollos, if you're rallying behind Peter, you have missed the point. Paul and Peter... I guess in Mary, in this case. They don't save you. They can't save you. And so the person who baptizes you doesn't matter. What matters is who you're baptized into. And so Paul says, we need to have the cross as our rallying cry. That's our rallying cry, is the cross. We're baptized into the risen Savior. Let's talk a little bit about baptism, baptism if you don't mind. This is Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Many of you have committed this to memory. I'm going to read it nonetheless. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Baptism, and it's an act of primary allegiance and identity. Now, it's lost on us a little bit. In the ancient world, this was a very well understood act. To be baptized into something was to be drawn out of something else. So if you're baptized into the body of Christ, you're being removed from the world and its judgment and moved into uh, the body of Christ, the church, and your primary allegiance then is the risen Savior. So baptism was an, an important step in the life of a believer. Baptism does not save the individual. We understand this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, except for baptism. No. It's not by works. So that no one 
can boast. However, it is assumed by the early church that having been saved, you will be baptized as a, a primary way of communicating the allegiance of your heart and the identity of who you are. You say, who, am I who is my allegiance to? It is to my Savior, Christ crucified and raised from the dead, and being baptized into him, I identify with him in his crucifixion and his resurrection. So it's an act of primary uh, allegiance. It's an, it's an act of saying who I am identified with, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So to be baptized into Christ, I'm not baptized into a body of believers who have common interests. I'm baptized into a body of believers who are also identified with Christ. That's the point. Apollos didn't save, Peter didn't save. Baptism says, Christ saved me. So then there's the mission. Preach the gospel. That's what it says in verse 19. Go and make disciples of all nations. Preach Christ and Christ crucified. Draw people to faith in Christ, not into a, a, a community of believers with just merely common interest. Okay, last verse, and then we need to uh, take communion together. 1 Corinthians 1.17. Look at what Paul says. This is crazy. Christ did not send me to baptize. Wait a minute. Didn't we just read Matthew 18? So what's he saying here? Christ didn't call me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. His mission was to preach the gospel, and not to do it the way Apollos would do it. Apollos was going to do his thing, but Paul's going to do it his way. His way was real simple. Go to the Jews first in the city. Jesus is the Messiah, the culmination of, the, of Moses, the writing, and all the prophets. He has come to save sinners, not through the law. He has fulfilled the law. And he died on the cross so that all who trust in him will have their sins forgiven. The law no longer applies. They will have eternal life because he's raised from the dead. And the Jews will say, you're a heretic. You say, fine, see ya. Like, there's not a lot of sales with this guy. We don't believe you. Bye. Go into the Gentiles and go right next door. Then go to the Gentiles. Jesus died for sinners. Some of them make fun of him. Occasionally he gets beat up. One time in Ephesus he had to wrestle wild animals. That's dangerous. No safety equipment involved. And he preaches the gospel. Some of them believe, some of them don't. But his job is not to be eloquent. And his job is not to baptize. And the reason he is saying my job is not to baptize is this. The, the people uh, during... Uh, around the city of Corinth, what they were doing is they were keeping their stats. So a, a teacher might pull out their little baptism stat book. They say, hey, yeah, we'd like to have come and preach at our conference, but could you confirm for us the number of baptisms you have to see if you measure up? We want to know, we want to make sure you've got enough stats to be important enough to, to speak at our conference. And Paul goes, I don't know baptize. I don't play your numbers game. I'm going to preach the gospel. People believe it, good for them. They're saved. They don't believe it, they, then they don't believe. My job is to preach. My job is not to pad my stats. My job is not to make people think I'm good at what I do. His ministry, in fact, has an intentional focus on the power of the cross and not methods to convince people to join him. That's what he says. Look what it says. Uh, I preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. He intentionally spoken in a way that the person either believes the message of the gospel or they don't. 
He didn't have a slick presentation. He wasn't trying to be wise in the world's eyes. He was not trying to sound really religious and super uh, brilliant. He just simply wanted people to understand. You're a sinner. You need a savior. Jesus died and rose from again. Rose again. You can believe him and he'll save you or don't. He is not working to impress people or pad his stats. Because Paul understood fundamentally, we are held together by the cross because the gospel changes everything. That's, what, that's how firmly he believed in the transforming work of Jesus who was crucified. Held together by the cross. Not insignificant commonalities. And held together by the cross because the gospel changes everything. Let's look just briefly, if you don't mind, back at John 17. A couple of extra verses on here I'm going to read. John 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus is praying for his disciples. I do not ask for those only, these only, that is disciples, but also for those who will believe me through their word. Verse 21, we already read. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be one in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So who is Jesus praying for in verse 21? The people who believe in Christ through the message of the disciples. Who's that? That's us. That's you. He's praying for us. He knew what he was doing. He didn't just pray for the disciples. He said, I'm going to pray for the people that are going to come down the road. So that's us. What's he pray for us? That we would be one. Just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. That's his prayer request. I'm going to pray something completely impossible for the church at FBC Medford. I would pray that that church, 2,000 years from right now, will have unity that can only be described in terms of the union of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. What brings Christ the greatest glory? The union he has with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen. So therefore, what do we do that reflects Christ's greatest glory? Have unity. Be one. Well, I thought it was other things. I thought if we had a really big building, it would be in Christ's glory. He doesn't care about our building. Like, he's got better. I hope he's got better. Tell me he's got better, right? Oh, he'll be glorified if we have a whole bunch of people show up. Really? I mean, he has like multitudes of angels who sing him good morning songs. And you think he's going to like wake up, oh, wow, they had 400 people there today. Wow, I had no idea that things were going so well. Are you serious? You think he's impressed with that? You think he's impressed with our theological astuteness? We're, we're so brilliant. We, we read authors other people can't read. You know, Jesus is impressed with our intellect. That's funny. That's funny. What, what brings glory to your Savior in the body of Christ? Oneness in the church that can only be described as reflecting the union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That brings him the greatest glory. How possible is that? Completely impossible. The only means by which that is impossible is if a group of believers fundamentally say, I want Jesus as my rallying cry. I want him as my rallying cry. 
Let me finish the passage and then we'll close. Maybe. We'll see. I have given them that you may be one even as we are one. Verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus here makes it clear. A lack of unity in the body of Christ that is fundamentally based on oneness around the cross of Christ tells the world he's not really the Savior. The unity of the church around lesser things than the cross tells the world he's not really the Savior. A church that comes together and says, we want perfect unity as we come together and make the cross our rallying cry, communicates to the world that he is indeed our Savior. I'm going to invite the worship team up here as we touch on a couple of things, and uh, you can get your communion elements out. And I wanted to give you a couple of ways to apply this as we uh, take communion uh, together so you can open those and be prepared. I want to give you a couple of more things to think about before we pray and respond to the Lord's word this morning. The priority of unity for Christ was his glory. And we have to understand that unity is not uniformity. So let me, let me explain what I mean by that because that's really what's happening in the church in Corinth and what's happened in every church ever since. We have to seek unity because we will tend to seek uniformity and call it unity because we like uniformity. Look, we're all the same. So we have unity. That's not unity. Unity is something fundamentally different. We have to actually diligently seek unity because it's something we wouldn't automatically do. When we, when we seek the cross as our rallying cry, we have to fight the urge to merely seek people of similar interests because that's normal. It's normal for us to say, I want to hang out with people who are like me. And, and what we do is we seek, uh, we elevate this uniformity over unity. Things that we want to hang around with people who are like us. But what we don't understand is when we merely seek to have connection with people who are like us, it harms our testimony in the world. Let me explain how. Here's some things we like to have connection with other people around. We like to have, hang out with people who agree with our view on politics. We do, don't we? It makes dinner conversations more pleasant. Unless you're a contrarian, you just like arguing, well, then you enjoy being around with people you don't like, don't know. But we like hanging around people who have similar views on how the government should work for us. And so what we do is we have unity because we all vote the same way. Or because we have similar views on how, how politics should function in the world around us. And how do you know this happens in your life? Because you might hear somebody who has different political views and maybe they're a part of a different political party than you uh, are and you wonder, you wouldn't say it out, you wonder, how could you be a Christian? <laughs> have you ever thought of that as somebody? Are you serious? Have you, of course we have. Where in the world does that come from? 
Because certainly when you get to heaven, you show your voter registration card. It's, mo it's so ridiculous. But we do it, don't we? We want to hang around pe with people who vote like us and think like us. We, wanna we don't want to hang around with people who have a similar education in us. If we're well-educated and have had the opportunity to pursue uh, college degrees and advanced degrees, we want to hang around with people with, with a, a similar educational background. And if we have not pursued those kind of educational things, we, we might look at people with lots of education as snooty, know-it-alls. We don't want to hang around with people who are, who are different than us. We like to hang around with people who are a similar, similar uh, profession that we, ha we have. People who have similar hobbies than us. And this happens geographically. In this, in this uh, part of the country, a lot of people like doing things in the outdoors. We like hunting. We like fishing. Apparently, we like killing animals. That's what we do, I guess, for on the weekends, right? Well, what if somebody came in and, and said, I love Jesus, and he saved me from my sin, and I'm a vegetarian? And many of you are like, yeah, no big deal. And some of you are like, what? how could you be a Christian? Have you not read Genesis? After the flood, God, by his grace, said, eat the animals. How could you possibly be a vegetarian? Somebody comes in and they say, one of the primary concerns I have is how we as Christians steward the environment. I feel like we have a duty to conserve and protect. Even me saying it is bothering somebody. I can tell. You're squirming. You're like, my application today, I'm going to burn tires in my front yard. I see how you're working. And you're saying, how could somebody be a Christian and have the environment as something that's important to them? Is that that's not what Christians do in my world. Christians in my world uh, call environmentalists cookies and treat them poorly. So we rally around people who are like us. We rally around people who come from a similar ethnic background than us. And you look at the churches, even in our valley, and you say, clearly, we're coming together, and it's not a means by which we're finding unity in places... Uh, that is the cross only. We're finding unity in other things, lesser things. And Jesus says our unity is the cross. This is critically important in the first century where people were getting saved and nobody had, once you get saved, you were baptized into Christ, you no longer had a home community. And so your church was your family. And you had to figure out how to be family with Greeks and with Jews and with Africans and people living uh, in India and the, and the ancient Babylonia, and all these people had to come together and, and say, is what's important the kind of food we eat, what we look like, or the kinds of things we do with our family, or what's most important right now? And what was it for the church? It was the cross. And Jesus is saying that union in the cross and the cross alone and all lesser things not mattering is that which will give a testimony to the world around us about how we are in Christ, and he is our Savior. What did Jesus do for us? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. Jesus broke bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Here's what Jesus did for us. He served us, people who don't deserve to be served, for our benefit at his cost. 
So Jesus took his body and paid the penalty for our sin. So he served us, those who do not deserve to be served. Agreed? He served us. And he served us at his cost for our benefit. This is what Jesus does. And when we, when we look at the cracker, it's supposed to remind us that Jesus' body was broken for us, which means he served us who didn't deserve it because he loved us. And it was at his own cost. Jesus willingly served. And then the cup tells us about his shed blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus willingly forgives others. In fact, he forgives us even though we sinned against him. So we don't deserve his forgiveness. At his own cost, he provides the way for us to experience that forgiveness. The only way for a church to function in the unity God has called it to is for a body of believers to do together what Jesus did for us. It's the only way. It's, it's Jesus did this already for us. He gave his body to serve people who don't deserve it. He gave his blood to serve people who don't deserve it. And when a group of people get that and they say, wait, Jesus did that for me. What's my job? To show the unity of the cross of Christ by doing that same thing for the people around me. And guess what? It's the same group of people, so that means they don't deserve it any more than they deserved it from somebody else. If a church is functioning in unity without being like Jesus, it is no more than a social group, a fraternal organization. It's an Elks Lodge that lets women in. Organized around common interests, political issues, social issues, ethnic issues. What does a church look like where everyone has the same perspectives and interests? Everybody looks the same. But when a church functions the way Jesus called us to function, the world looks at a church and says, how in the world does that group of people get along? Why in the world are they getting together? Because I don't, I don't see any reason. I'm looking at this group of people. I can't think of any reason why this group of people would get together. And the only explanation for that kind of unity is they, they must have actually encountered a risen Savior. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Lesser unity is not unity at all. It harms the gospel. The unity we're seeking to is to be held together by the cross. What I want you to do as we get ready to pray, I'm going to want to give you a moment to pray. I want you to think about these three questions. One I've already asked is why are you part of a church? If it's not being held together by the cross, this is an opportunity for repentance and confession to your Savior. Second question is we think about the broken bread and the blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ and the blood of Christ. How will I serve like Jesus in my community? In my community of believers, how am I going to serve others that demonstrates the cross is my rallying cry? How can I show the grace of Christ to others around me? What does forgiveness look like in my life? What does service to people who don't deserve it look like in my life? I want to give you an opportunity to pray and seek the Lord in these things. And after a few minutes, I'll read from Scripture and we'll take communion together. God, we thank you as we come before you in prayer that you hear us. 
And as we come before you, Lord, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts.